So Peter first addresses an accusation repeated by the skeptics present and future, namely that he and the apostles just made up all of this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead and king of the world. Jesus isn't really going to come back one day. So Peter offers his eyewitness testimony of the powerful moment of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Remember the story in Mark chapter 9. The apostles saw Jesus exalted as king, and his resurrection means that he's alive as king and will return to rescue our world one day. And so the future return of Jesus to bring God's kingdom, this will fulfill what all the ancient scriptures have been pointing to all along. The words of the Old Testament prophets. They're not fabricated fantasies. Rather, through these human words of scripture and through the human Jesus, God himself has spoken to us. So you see in the picture that the, the picture of Peter is doing this. The two things that prove that this statement is not true in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths or that this is true. They didn't follow cleverly devised myths. Now, what is he talking about here? These cleverly devised myths. He's talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the promises of God. He says, we didn't make it up. I like the way that they put it in the Bible Project video. We didn't make this stuff up. What is, what is it that they might be concerned that they were making up? Well, when you look at the rest of the book or the whole book, one thread that I follow through that you don't see in these, this Bible Project video is the idea of the promises of God. The idea of the promises of God is very pronounced in, very, in chapter 1 and verse 4. We looked at that last week. It says, uh, uh, starting at verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. When you read that, you think, whoa, partakers of the divine nature. That's pretty profound stuff. What does that look like? Well, taking of the divine nature looks like faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, brotherly affection and love, which he talks about in verse 7 of chapter 1. So that's what the divine nature begins to look like, but it comes about as a result of the promises of God. So here's the question. Are these promises that we find in God's word, are they God's words? Are humanity's words? Are they simply people writing their thoughts about God, which is the thought of very many people in our culture even today? Especially in a scientific world, how can this be a supernatural book? It must be just humanity's book, writing their thoughts about God, right? That's what our world thinks. Or, this is actually God's divine word. And Peter defends that. He says, I, this isn't just made up stuff. This isn't just stuff that we see in our culture today. This isn't... And, and you look at different people throughout, this, uh, throughout the, uh, the 21st century, and there's this idea that this is just humanity's book. In fact, a view of, of, of the Bible is we need to deconstruct what's here. Because this obviously couldn't be God's words, and so it must be man's words. And it was given by an oral history, which must have been embellished on before it was actually written down. And then even after it was written down, it was embellished on some more. 
And so they would look at the Old Testament, and there's a, a, a theological uh, perspective called form and redaction criticism that there were these series of authors J E P and D and they they each came along and and uh, th- those are the initials that they refer to Yahwehistic and Deuteronomy uh, that's easy hard to say but Deuteronomyistic and uh, and you look at those these different editors or redactors and they they edited the the thing. And so what we need to do in the 21st century is we need to deconstruct all of that and we need to get back at the real stories and what it really means is I deconstruct all the supernatural out of the thing because we're in a scientific world. And what they're saying is this is humanity's book, not God's book. And Peter says that's not right. Well, how do we know who's right? 21st century, our culture today, or Peter? Who's correct? Well, Peter defends that because actually it's being this similar kind of thing was being said in his day, not as well-developed as, as uh, 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 form and redaction criticism by Whitehead or not as developed as, uh, as the idea of deconstructionism. But they were just saying, you guys are just making this stuff up, which is essentially what our generation is saying. And Peter's saying that's not the case. These promises are great and precious because they're God's promises, not ours. Because think about it. If I were to write and say, oh, these are God's promises, that when you go through a very difficult season of life, God will be with you. And it's just my words, not his. Well, what do you have to bank on? My words? My words mean anything? Do they help you at all? No, they don't. You need God's words. We have a family that is very precious to us, the uh, Gorells. You know Matt and Katie. Katie is one of the Gorells. She's now a Stevens, but uh, her sister's husband just had a stroke. He's 40 years old. Wasn't found for seven hours. Usually you want to be, on a stroke victim, you want to, within seven minutes, want to have something happen. And he sat in the movie theater for seven hours before somebody discovered him. They're going through some very difficult times. Do you think that they need the promises of God right now? More than my promises? Do they need to know that this is, this is something they can count on? That, that uh, I will never leave you or ever forsake you? Something that God is saying? Or something that just Greg says about God? Because my words aren't going to mean the same thing as God's words about himself. The thing that we sang about, the Father's arms open wide, is that just a nice thing that we sing about? Or is it something Jesus talked about in the prodigal son and says, this is the way the Father is towards you. It's not that he's sitting there like this and he's, he's ignoring you and he's cut you off. You come to him. And you come to him by faith. And his arms are open wide and he comes running towards you, which an ancient father, a patriarch of a family would never do. He would never show that disrespect of himself and and yet Jesus says, this is the way the Father is. He loves you that much. And he comes running to you. God's words, not man's. It's important who Jesus was. It's important what this book is. Jesus, the incarnate word, the, the scriptures, the written word of God. And so we need to, to know 
are, can we depend on these promises? And Peter defends them to us. We have to understand that this book is full of, of uh, 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 helps us to understand who God is. Or else it's not going to mean much to us. When it really push comes to shove in those dark moments, those dark nights when we're at home and we're, and we're feeling the world kind of crowding in on us and anxiety is in, in a height. And we've lost a job or we've been furloughed or whatever and all of a sudden we're struggling. I want to encourage you to do something. Keep a journal of the promises of God. You have some right here in this passage. You've been given precious and very great promises. What are they going to do? You're going to become a partaker of the divine nature. That's a promise. Uh, you, can, you have everything you need for life and godliness. If you ever get to the point where you say, I can't, you know you've got, I can. If you have these eight virtues that he lists, then it'll, you'll be effective and fruitful, verse 8. You'll be uh, able to see, verse 9, and also in our passage where it says, a light shining in a dark place. You'll be able to never fall, Verse 10, and that's why Peter says, I want to remind you of this stuff. Before This is my last words to you. I want to remind you of this stuff. I don't want you to forget about the promises of God, and I don't want you to question them. They're not made up stuff. We didn't just come up with them yesterday. There are stuff you can bank on. And yet you may have a little bit of doubt. There may be times where you struggle with doubt. I love the passage in Mark 9 where Jesus is uh, asking this man, you know, about healing his son. And, and, and the guy says, well, if you can. And Jesus says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And I love the response of this guy, so honest. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And you go, wait a minute. Belief and unbelief in the same person? Yes. It's really all of us, belief and unbelief in us. If I'm growing in faith, here's one day I realized, if I'm growing in faith and I'm growing to faith, what am I growing from? Unbelief. So in my life, I should be growing in faith and decreasing in doubt. But there's going to come times where I'm beginning to wonder, God, are you there? God, do you care? Yes, 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 a thousand times, yes, yes, he's here. Yes, he cares. But there's times where we turn our back on him and we walk away. And we've got to make a decision. Is this humanity's book or is this God's book? And Peter says, this is the word of God and you can bank on it. You can depend on it. Your life depends upon it. And in fact, Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Here's the scriptures. Here's the word from his mouth. It will not return to me empty, but shall accomplish for that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every time you open this book and read the words, you have that promise that those words are going to somehow impact you and change you and transform you and make you different. And so we need to make it a decision are these cleverly devised myths or is this the word of God? So he goes on. He says, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this idea of the power of Christ we see in verse 3 of chapter 1. His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so he's, this power is important because it's the same power that gives us everything that we need. And then he says, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ which he talks about in chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, where is the promise of his coming? They're questioning this promise. And he's saying it's true for both, the power and coming. And he says, here's how I know. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him by the majestic glory, which he's referring to as God the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for, which, for, um, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And you stop and you think, okay, what's he referring to here? What's this holy mountain that he's referring to? Well, it's, he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, there are two possible locations that in history uh, people have gone to. One is Mount Tabor. That's the traditional spot of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a small conical-shaped mountain in the Jezreel Valley. And it's near Nazareth. And some said, well, that's where it was. Trouble is, is there was actually a village on top of this hill. Right now there's three churches up there, but there used to be a, an ancient village up here during the time of Christ. And you think, well, he wouldn't get much privacy there for the event that took place. A lot more people would have seen this happen. And he was just at Caesarea Philippi. In fact, if you'll turn with me, he, I think in the, uh, 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 the video that we watched, it says Mark, and there, it does happen in Mark. But I want you to turn with me to Matthew's gospel, chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we're going to read uh, a little bit about what happened. It says, And after six days, Jesus took, him, took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. So it's just the four of them going up by themselves up this mountain. And you think, okay... So they were just at Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember what happened at Caesarea Philippi? At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is with his disciples. There's a, a cave there that uh, has water in it, and people have called that uh, the gate of hell. That's what they referred to it in that day. It was, there was a shrine to the god Pan there. And, uh, and Jesus asked the disciples, as they're standing watching this place, uh, and the God Pan is a very decadent God, by the way. And so they're looking at this place and Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, they say this or that or the other person. He says, but who do you say that I am? Remember what Peter did. He says uh, in verse uh, uh, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now God confirms that message. In chapter 17, he confirms it. Now, if they were at Caesarea Philippi, now there were six days it happened, so they would have had time to, trans to, to go to Mount Tabor. But I think that they went to one of these. Uh, this is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is uh, snow-capped in this picture. It's the, uh, uh, today, uh, on, it, 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 
is in uh, three countries. The Mount uh, Hermon is in Israel and Lebanon and also Syria. It's, it's part, uh, part of it is, uh, belongs to each of those countries. And uh, this is Caesarea Philippi, right at the base of Mount Hermon. That's about a 9,000 feet elevation. It's ski slopes today, uh, not in Jesus' day. I don't believe they had skiing then. But um, you had Caesarea Philippi. It makes sense that somewhere on this mountain, desolate place, is where Jesus met with his disciples. And, had, and this event occurred. And it, here's what happened. It says in verse 2, And he was transfigure, transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And so you realize, Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him in his glorified body uh, on that mountain. We saw a preview of what's hap- going to happen. We saw a preview of him coming again. And if he could do that, if that could happen, then when it talks about him coming again, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we heard the voice of the Father. Listen to what happens next. It says in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And I'm not sure how they knew who they were. Maybe they had a mixer before. I don't know how they figured it out. Maybe the name's on their shirt. But uh, they knew it was Moses and Elijah somehow. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here understatement of the century of the world lord's good we are absolutely if you wish i will make three tents here one for you one for moses one for elijah he was still speaking when god interrupts him it's like shut up peter let me speak and he says a bright cloud overshadowed them the shekinah glory of god remember the 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 Uh, in the desert, the children of Israel, they had the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud in the day. Here's the cloud, and yet it shines brightly, so it's kind of both. It says, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did Peter just say about Jesus? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. What does God say? This is my beloved son. He's confirming what Peter just said. Listen to him. In other words, shut up, Peter. Listen to him. Let him speak. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In other words, you've got to keep quiet about this. I'm sure that was really tough for Peter, who liked to talk. And the disciples ask him, then why do the scribes say the first, that first Elijah must come? So they're, they're asking about the scriptures. The Bible says this, and how is it coming about? Is it going to come about? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So here he's giving a, a, a prediction of the future. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this Elijah was to come, was John the Baptist, and he had already come. And and so he was showing that the promises of God were fulfilled. God fulfills his promises. God keeps his promises. When he says something, it will happen. And so when Jesus died on a cross, he was going to rise from the grave. And the scriptures talked about that. The scriptures pointed toward that. 
And Jesus did have to die to suffer. Just like we sang about, forgiveness was purchased by his blood. It has to come that way. It couldn't be that I create forgiveness for myself. It's, it has to come from him. Which means he had to rise from the grave. Isaiah 53 and other passages make it clear. Daniel 9. I love Daniel 9. Daniel 9 talks about when Jesus was going to die. A promise, a prophecy about what was going to happen to Christ. It says, when the, from the time of a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem till the Messiah is cut off is seven sevens or seven uh, King James translated it weeks seven sevens and 62 sevens so 69 sevens 483 years 483 years from the time the decree was made in Nehemiah's day by Artaxerxes till Palm Sunday was 483 years exactly and then Jesus was cut off that same week there are some that said, oh, well, Daniel was written a couple hundred years uh, later than people think. Well, that was still 200 years before Jesus was cut off. God's word, God is a, a God who keeps his word. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? He does keep his word. He does say uh, what he's going to do and he confirms his word. In Hebrews chapter 2, I love this passage because it's talking about the gospel. In regard to the gospel of God, Hebrews says that it was uh, first spoken by the Lord. Hebrews 2, 1. It says, therefore, we must pay all much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or dis disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's talking about the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus spoke it. It was attested to us by those who heard, so the apostles confirmed it. God also bore witness. Well, how did he bear witness? By signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The Mount of Transfiguration would be one of those. God was confirming. Peter, you said this is the Son of God. I'm confirming that. God's pointing the finger at saying, this is true. And so he's, Peter's referring to that. He says uh, that they heard this voice born from the mountain in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, when we are on the holy mountain, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Wait a minute, it must have been already been confirmed. And now it's more fully confirmed. Now how is it? confirmed in the first place. You remember last time I said that HR, something that HR people know, that the past is a great, greater predictor of future results than promises. You can sit in a job interview and you can say, I'm going to be the greatest employer you've ever had, right? But what's, your, what's the guy wanting to hire you going to look at? How is your past job performance? How did you do at other companies? Because that's going to be a greater predictor of future results than what you say in that job interview about how good you're going to be. So if I use that same thing here, 
God can make promises about the future. So I want to look at the past and see how, how well did he do in, pro, in past promises. And I can tell you, great, 100%. He keeps his promises. He doesn't go back on them. And so I know that the very God who I can look at all the promises of God throughout Scripture, I can look at all the predictions that talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, that Jesus was going to rise from the grave, and I can look at all of those things and know God kept his word all these years. He is going to keep his word and its promises to me. You can bank on it. I know that Jesus is coming back both because of Peter's testimony as he points to what he saw, remember the picture, and to the prophets, what the holy prophets have said all these years leading up to this point. And he says, to which you will do well to pay attention. So pay attention to this stuff. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, he talks about a lamp and then he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he talks about a lamp and a morning star rising. And you think, so what are these pictures here, these images? I thought, you know, uh, how, how do we understand them? Well, he's talking about what? The prophetic word. He says, pay attention to the word of God, which shines as a lamp. Oh, that makes sense. In Psalm 119, we have a uh, uh, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so we know that, that God's word is something that, that gives me insight, gives me direction, helps me shining in a dark place. Where is that dark place? My heart. That he shines and he gives me understanding. He gives me insight into who he is. And so I know that that I can, I can take his word and I can study it. And as Hebrews talks about, it'll divide between joints and marrow, between my, in my spirit and in my heart, and, and it's going to discern my thoughts and intentions. And, and, and I think, wow, when I read the word, it's amazing how many times it penetrates and gets right, cuts me right to the quick about who I am. But that next phrase, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, what is that a reference to? I think it's a reference to the second coming, the coming of Christ. Until the day dawns, that day, that day when Jesus is going to come back. And the morning star is referring to Jesus, I believe, and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. I look at Revelation, and it, and it talks about the morning star and clearly references Jesus Christ. I look at uh, the, the promise in uh, Balaam's prophecy that, that uh, a, a star would rise in the east, and I know that this morning star is Jesus Christ. But here's an interesting thing. It says, rises in your hearts. And so the question is, is the second coming a subjective thing? It's Jesus coming again subjective, and it's just something that happens in my heart. I remember uh, years ago, I was uh, asked to preach at an at a, uh, Easter sunrise service. It was a community event that we used to do in those days, and there'd be about 10 or 12 churches that were a part of that, and some were conservative, and some were liberal, and, and some of the liberal churches I knew that morning would, would, would say that the resurrection was not an actual event. 
It was not historical, that it was just something that rises in your hearts. And I think that they would reference a passage like this and say it's a subjective thing. And what happens is, is we look at Jesus's life, we look at his death and how he died for the disciples and his sacrifice. And so it causes us to want to just sacrifice in our lives as well. So it, it, it transforms our thinking in our hearts. But it wasn't an actual historical event in their mind. And I know I've read a lot of uh, of different guys. I've read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wanted to make sure that people understood that uh, and, and, and were able to track along with his thinking because he went from being somebody who didn't believe to somebody who believed. And he was trying to dispel the resurrection. And so he studied the resurrection and studied the scriptures and, and led himself to Christ. I remember Harold Morrison, a guy who wrote Who Moved the Stone? And he talked about how he, where he was in the first chapter, he was talking about his testimony of what happened and he was going to, he was tired of people talking about the resurrection and he was going to completely blow it out of the water because it certainly couldn't be historical. And that chapter was titled, The Book That Refused to Be Written, and he went on to write about the fact that he believed in Christ because of the evidence of the empty tomb and the stone rolled away. I think about uh, Josh McDowell, who uh, was writing during the time that I was in college, and he wrote evidence that demanded a verdict. He had just written that. Uh, he was a professor, I believe, at UCLA or USC, I can't remember which, and he had students coming up and trying to lead him to Christ, so he thought, I'm just going to destroy Christianity once and for all, and he wrote evidence that demands a verdict because he studied the resurrection and studied the scriptures and not only began to defend the resurrection, he began to defend the scriptures. I think about the guy who wrote a case for Christ and a case for faith, Lee Strobel, who was an atheist and his wife dragged him to church and he began to investigate the resurrection and came to Christ because he began to wrestle with who was Jesus in fact. The scriptures are powerful. Isaiah 55, 11 says that they will accomplish what God sent them out for. His word is powerful and it transforms and it changes us. And so when you look at what he, what he says is it's not just a morning star rising in our hearts. It's an actual event. So what is this thing rising in our hearts? This is the, uh, there is a subjective side and it's a subjective result, not a subjective historical event. It's an actual historical event that has an impact on me and that changes my heart and changes me just like he talked about in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 4, these great promises so that you may be partakers of the divine nature. It's, it's, you're not going to be the same. You respond to Jesus Christ, who he is in fact, the risen Lord of glory, the one who Peter saw on the mountain that was, he saw his majesty, he saw him in his glorified state. And it will change you. It will, it will forever change you. I know when I came to Christ at the University of Texas, I didn't go to a Christian college, I went to a secular one. I went to a secular college because I didn't really want anything to do with the Lord. I was raised in a church, but we didn't use our Bible, so I didn't know the Word of God. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't know I was supposed to. And someone challenged me about who Jesus was and his claims on my life. And here at a secular college, 
secular university, I received Christ as my Savior. And it's forever changed me. I'm not the same. I was a music major who was planning to just be a music teacher and teach orchestra. And God completely changed the trajectory of my life. Not that he does that for everyone and causes them to live differently than what they had planned. But he did in my case. Because I understood that he is who he said he is. And that this, his word means something. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, he says, this is really important. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And the question you ask is, are you talking about the authors here or the readers? Because in our day, in postmodern thinking, the idea is, it's, I don't care, I could care less about the original author's intent. The only question is, is my intent when I read it? Does, uh, what does it mean to me? But if I do that, then I've essentially just gutted the scriptures as God's word. And I've just made it my own personal book that just kind of inspires me. And Peter said, that's not what this book is all about. He says, it doesn't matter the author's interpretation or the reader's interpretation only the original author's understanding. It comes from him. It's, it's his word. And he, and he talks about the origin of it and how it came about in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, people didn't just come up with this stuff. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That picture of being carried along, that word that's used there, the Greek word that's used there, has this picture of a ship that has a, a, a large sail. And the wind fills the sail and moves the ship along. And so it wasn't, his picture that he's using is, is it wasn't that God just dictated to these people and they just kind of went into some trance and they're just kind of like an automaton just kind of writing stuff. And we know that's not the case, that it was done that way, uh, because you see the different writers' writing styles evident in the different books that they wrote. And you think, but wait a minute, how can it be and, and, and use a person's writing style and their understanding of Greek grammar and, and the whole thing, how can it come, the, the final result be something that's inspired scripture, that's the word of God without error? How can that happen? How can that be? They have human and divine and you end up with something that's perfect because you've got these imperfect humans. Well, you've got Jesus was fully man and fully God, human and divine, and yet the result was perfect. When God does something, he can take humanity and create something that's inspired, something that's divine, something that's without error. They were carried along from the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. That idea of speaking from God. It's God's words. These are God's words that, that he intended for us to have. And so when we look at that, we realize this is something I can count on. I can depend on. I think, well, now the inspiration, was it, was it uh, only the authors inspired and they were inspired and then they wrote? Or was it the final result? Well, it's both. Here it's clear that the authors were moved along by the Spirit. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, so it's the final result is also inspired. So we can count on it, we can depend on it. 
We also don't have to understand these things for ourselves because he says doesn't come from one's own interpretation. What he said right before that, pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. God illuminates his word to us. He lets us through the Holy Spirit know what it was that he intended all along. And if I want God's word, then I need to understand that, that I have the spirit of God residing within me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that the spirit is the one who understands God's thoughts and he resides in us so that we can understand what God intends for us through the illuminating power of the Spirit of God. So when we look at this passage, the question is, so how do we approach the Word of God? I want to look at some principles uh, I'm going to look at some postmodern principles of how we typically look at it in our generation. Then I want to look at some principles that I believe are how we are supposed to look at it. And so this is how we shouldn't look at the Word of God. We shouldn't look at it by seeking the attention of the reader, not the author. Talked about that. If I, if I read this and it only matters what I want it to mean, then I could just make this stuff up. Why even read this stuff? I might as well just write my own stuff, Right? So I seek the intention of the original author. 21st century context defines meaning, not the ancient context. That's not, that's not how to read it. If I read it in that sense, then it doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter that Peter's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Or seeing the meaning as relative to you, not the original recipient. And so this idea of relativism that comes with relative truth that we see in postmodernism. And the interesting thing about relativism is it fails. It fails to find truth. If I'm looking for truth and meaning, relativism won't get me there. Because I will say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth and you can believe what you want and I can believe what I want. I know that, you know, I've, I want to believe that I'm, I'm a billionaire. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how much I believe that and want, to, want it to, to be true, it doesn't make it true. I can't change reality by trying to make it mean something. And, and there are those, in, in, uh, and I mentioned it last week, there are those in, in uh, uh, prosperity theology that teach that just like God was able to create with his word, so we can. So we need to speak things out loud. And when we speak them out loud, they will come about. Eckhart Tolle was teaching that same uh, thing that uh, and, and uh, burn uh, that Oprah Winfrey picked up and the, and the idea of the secret that, that the whole universe has to line up with my thoughts and you know I've never seen that happen in my lifetime it can't be relative truth there's absolute truth in postmodernism I read my biases into the text and I deconstruct the supernatural I take all the supernatural out of it and there must be a story behind it so how should I look at the scriptures? I need to seek the intention of the original author. I need to understand that the original context is what defines meaning. That I can look at the context of a word. And, and we expect that in our own day. Whenever you're speaking, you want people to understand your words in your context. And you, you'll even say, ah, that was taken out of context. You, yeah, I said those words, but you took it out of context, right? Because the context helps people understand what you meant. And we do the same thing with the Old Testament or, or the, the scriptures and we shouldn't do it. Seek the plain sense of a passage. What it says is what it probably means. 
And if it's a figure of speech, then I take it as a figure of speech. But I don't make something a figure of speech because I just don't like what it really is saying. Understand an unclear passage in light of a clear one. That's an ancient idea that uh, there was a Latin phrase, analogia uh, fide, which means in, let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you're having an unclear passage, then go to a clearer one that helps you to understand what that one that you're looking at might mean. Look for the timeless principle. I love this uh, illustration that I learned from Howard Hendricks that I look for the timeless principle of what happened then. Because I learned something about God or I learned something about our world or about how he deals with his people. And then what's the modern application of that? The application may look different in all of our, our, our uh, lives, but the timeless principle should be the same. So I look for that timeless principle. I distinguish between Israel and the church. I know that when I came to Christ, the guy who was the founder of the Navigators, Dawson Trotman, said, you know, if Israel's not going to claim the promises, then I am. I was like, what? I can't complain. I, I can't claim a promise that is intended for someone else. If someone promised you $1,000, I can't walk up and say, hey, I want, I want, a, I want a part of that. And they like, I didn't make the promise to you. I made it to them. I can't claim a promise in Scripture that was intended for someone else. Even though, the, the, you know, you see the church is grafted in. Well, we're not, we don't, I mean, we take over. We're simply grafted in to some of the promises of God. And especially the salvation promises. But not the land promises. I'm, I don't, I'm not claiming the land. The type of literature influences meaning. If I read the Psalms, there's going to be a lot of poetic language that I need to understand. What is communicating? Under God's wings, there was shelter under God's wings. Does God have wings? He doesn't need wings. He's a spirit. He doesn't need a physical corporeal body. When I read Proverbs, I need to understand that Proverbs is, is a book of wisdom and it doesn't necessarily have promises. And so if I'm claiming a promise out of Proverbs, I need to understand, well, maybe just uh, uh, an element of wisdom and that I need to understand it in that light. When we approach God's word, we need to understand these are the words of God. Peter defends it. These are, this is not just made up stuff. It's proven because he's an eyewitness of the glory of God. And, the word, and that just more fully confirmed what was already confirmed by the fulfillment of the promises themselves. If we can live according to the promises of God, we're going we're gonna to be have a light shining into our lives. We're going to see the coming of Christ and we're going to be partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Wow. And at those difficult times in our lives, at those times when we're, we're trusting in the Lord, we'll know he's going to come through because God is a God who keeps his promises. Father, we come to you this morning. And I thank you so much for your incredible love for us. I thank you for giving us an understanding of your word. And Lord, I pray that we would live for you. I pray that we would camp on your promises, that we would stand on your promises because they will come about. And Lord, I know that our lives will look different if we'll do that. Lord, I pray that there would be people here that journal 
your promises. That they would just keep a record of whenever they come across and see them in your word. Lord, I pray that they would, they would begin to get encouragement and excitement out of the promises that you give. Not only the promises of salvation, but the promises for our lives now. Because I know you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would tra transform us and change us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.